Uh, our text today is going to be found in 1 John chapter 4, uh, and that's towards the end of your Bible there, uh, starting in set, verse 7. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we'd love uh, for you to grab one in one of the seat pockets in front of you. They're kind of scattered throughout the rows. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one. It's our gift to you. Uh, if you do, just please return it after gathering. But I'd love for you to follow along. We'll be on the screen as well. And then lastly, if you're able to, this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word, uh, we're going to read through it together. Once again, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Providence, hear the Word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is also... Uh, as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. For if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. We got some cool weather, which is nice. We didn't win the World Series, which isn't nice. You can't win them all, right? So uh, I want to welcome you here. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it is your first time, I just want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. And we would love it if you get connected. Just let us know you were here. And you could do that by grabbing a card out of the seat back in front of you. But like Eric said, we're in a sermon series walking through the book of 1 John. And we're talking about Christian assurance as we walk through this letter. Uh, but this morning, I get to talk about the love of God, which I'm really excited about. Um, and... The last few weeks, I've been kind of kidding around, joking about the, the difficult text that somehow I landed with in the sermon calendar, but I get to talk about what really I think is the heart of the letter that first John writes to the church, which is about God's love being the motivating force that calls the Christian to love one another. Um, and so I really think in this text, what you see is there's, there's kind of two calls, one movement. Uh, we, we say it every week in, in the benediction of our gatherings, but we'll say, you know, love God and love people, or love God and love one another. Uh, and that's really one movement. It's one movement toward Christ, one movement to Jesus uh, that then turns us, our eyes, not just to God, but to one another, and that's what John's gonna kind of teach us here. Uh, but before we jump into it, what I'd love to do is pray and just ask the Lord to be with us, ask the Lord to speak to us through his word, so if you will bow your heads, I'll pray for us. 
Lord, I'm so grateful for your presence. Thank you that you have promised to be with us, to never forsake us. To give us that promise, Lord, is no small thing and we don't take it lightly. Thank you that you're here. Jesus, thank you that the cross stands as a historical truth and as a personal reality and experience that not only did you go from death to life on the third day, but you invite us the same way, that we can go from spiritual death to life by faith in you. Would you help us now for not just to read your word, but for your word to read us, where we ought to and need to be convicted of sin, of not loving one another, Lord, would you bring that conviction to us that leads to repentance in life? And Lord, where we need to be comforted rather than condemned by the enemy, Lord, would you bring that comfort by your grace? so that we might leave here with a fully energized, joyful heart that Jesus, you have truly paid it all like we sang earlier. And so we love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to start by telling a story, uh, a story of a guy named Dwight Moody, a uh, very popular figure. Uh, D.L. Moody was a guy who, who uh, famous preacher, uh, led the, the Moody Institute, he founded the Moody Institute. Um, and he spent a lot of his time kind of going around being an itinerant preacher. And as I was studying for this sermon, I was reading some of his stories. He actually said that in his life, he had his conversion to come to know Christ. And then he had these, what he would consider subsequent uh, moments. Some might call them you know, fillings with the Holy Spirit. There's these unique moments with God where he felt like it was, it almost, it almost was like a conversion experience all over again with the Lord. And particularly, they were surrounding God's love. And so he had come to know Christ, trusted Jesus, and he was in England and he was uh, preaching sermons uh, throughout uh, the English countryside, he was going into the cities, and this young man comes up to him and says, uh, I wanna come and preach in America, so I'm gonna come over to America to where you are, and then you can let me preach at your church. Which you can imagine, like, as a pastor, it's like the worst thing you wanna hear, you don't know this guy, you know, he comes up to you and says, hey, I'm gonna come preach at your place, cool? And not just like I'm gonna come to your house and drive, like I'm gonna get on a boat, I'm gonna sail across the sea, I'm gonna get, and then I'm gonna call you up, you know, via these, you know, owls or whatever you're gonna send, right? I'm coming to Chicago. <laughs> it's like Harry Potter at this point. <laughs> he ends up saying uh, in his journals, he said, I, I didn't know about this kid. I, he says, I did not think he could preach. Like just when I, by looking at him. So he's already kind of judging this young guy. It's like, I didn't think he could preach. Wasn't all that excited about it. So I just said, okay, well, when you get to America, yeah, just let me know. So he's kind of like passing him off. He's not thinking this kid's gonna really do it. Well, then he ends up getting a letter. Hey, I just, land, I just landed in New York, coming over. It's like, oh man, this guy's coming over. Like, okay, well, just let me know whenever you get into Chicago. Well, he ends up, he's, he's on his way. Hey, I'm, I'm coming, I'm gonna be there in a few days. So he ends up telling some of his elders, hey, I'm gonna be out of town so you can let this guy preach on Wednesday night. Uh, so he's really just passing the buck on to his elders, right? He's like, I won't be there, just let this guy. He's like, I don't know, he might be good, he might be bad. So anyway, the story goes on, if this guy stands up to preach, and he ends up preaching Wednesday night, and then he ends up preaching Thursday night, and he ends up preaching Friday night, and uh, D.L. Moody comes back and asks his wife, what'd you think about the guy? And she says, he doesn't really preach like you, but I think you'll like him, which is like a nice wife's way of saying, I like his preaching, but it doesn't mean I don't like yours, right? He's like, okay, so he says, Moody in his journal says, I went expecting not to like this guy. Like I went in with a critical eye. I went in thinking this guy's just gonna frustrate me. And the guy apparently had been walking through for three straight days, John 3, 16. He would just turn to John 3, 16 and begin to preach about the love of God. 
And then he'd come back the next morning or the next evening and say, Look, turn with me to John 3.16. I want to talk to you about the love of God. And he said, turn with me to John 3.16. I want to talk about the love. So the fourth night, he's preaching it again, John 3.16. Let me talk to you about the love of God. Fifth night, sixth night. At this point, it's starting to become like in the city. It's almost like this tiny revival that's happening or people are all coming in. They're just wowed by this guy. Um, and D.L. Moody said something's happening in his heart. He doesn't know why, but God's just breaking him over this guy's preaching about the love of God, that he had preached about the love of God in a way that he had never heard, had never experienced, and now God was beginning to convict him about how he really saw God. Does he really believe God loves him this way? And so on the seventh night, everybody's excited. They're like, what's this guy gonna preach? What's he gonna get up and say? And I just wanna read you a direct quote from uh, Moody's journals because he quotes this guy. And, and here's what happens. On the seventh night, they're like, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna talk about? Tons of people are there. They had to move to another church because they couldn't fit all the people into his church. So they moved to another building. And he says, for seven nights, I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but this poor stammering tongue of mine will not let me. If I could ascend Jacob's ladder and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, to tell me how much love God the Father has for this poor lost world, all that Gabriel could say to me is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And he says, so I haven't found a better, a better text to preach from, so turn with me again to John 3.16, and he begins to preach again. And Moody said that this was so moving to him, it changed his entire ministry. That his, he just, it, everything turned to, he felt that if he, didn't, if he didn't preach in light of God's love for the world, God's love for us at our weakest, if he didn't preach in light of that, then he felt like he had dishonored what God did right here in his life. And later on, he, he writes of a second time that this experience happens to him. He goes into a spiritual depression for like four months and he takes a sabbatical, he goes away and he finds himself prayer walking and it says, this is a quote, as he was prayer walking, he is so overwhelmed by a moment with God that he runs to the guy who's, who's housing him at the time in this other town. And he just says, I need, to, I need to go be alone in his room. So he goes in alone in his room and he begins to pray. And he says that the, the experience that he had in prayer with God was like something he had never experienced before. And he says this, ah, what a day, I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke of for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand, close quote. So he says it was so overwhelming that he had to tell God, that's enough, I can't deal with this. It's too powerful. I think, the reason I tell you that story is I think that's ultimately the field that John the Apostle has throughout this entire letter. That's the feel that I get, that he's really trying to culminate, trying to get to this point where he can tell his beloved, his children in the faith, that they need to experience the Father's love in this kind of way. Some commentators say, if Paul is the apostle of faith and James is the apostle of good works, that John is the apostle of love. And I told you guys this, I think when we first started this series, but there's a tradition that goes around that John on his deathbed, that they carried him on a, in a bed through the churches and he would just grab the hands of his parishioners and say, beloved, love one another, beloved, love one another, beloved, love one another. And if you read the gospels, you know that a guy like John, this would not be typical for his personality type based on what you see in the gospels. He's a very hard charging religious zealot who wants to call fire down from heaven on people who don't believe in Jesus when you read the gospels. And something turns in this guy's life that by the end of it, even though he had been exiled to the island of Patmos and horribly mistreated by the kingdom of Rome, he still is extremely tender-hearted. 
and calls on us to be not just lovers of God, but lovers of one another. And so this morning, what my prayer has been is not just that we would get the application of this text, because I'll just come right out and say it. I think you guys probably caught it just by reading it. The application of the text is very simple. Love one another. That's the application of this portion of scripture. We ought to love one another, beloved. But the motivating force and source behind that love is God's love for us. In this text, you only find really one time, and of all these verses from 7 to 21, you only find one time that it is even alluded to, our love for God. But you find over and over again God's love for us that should be the motivating factor that we would love one another. I, I think that's because it's almost assumed that the overwhelming, powerful, majestic love of God, it has a way of re, re-energizing, restarting, regenerating the heart that we would love him. It's impossible to have that experience with God, to know how much he loves us, and to not say, I, I love him just simply for that fact, how much he loves me. <laughs> I think it's almost like a given. It's this horizontal love that John says sometimes we forget. So I have a few points, and really what I want to do is just kind of walk through the text. And because I only have limited amount of time, I want to say this. There are some little verses in here that as I was preparing, I'm like, man, it's like a whole other sermon in here we can't even talk about. It's like I'm just focusing more on the theme. (laughs) So just know that from the outset. We're just going to kind of focus thematically. So let me read verses 7 through 11, and then we'll just kind of walk through it. John starts in this way. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever has been born of God, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and send his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Okay. Now I wanna make mention of something real quick. First point is this, love is from God. Love is from God because God is the source of all love. But I wanna read this because when you read God is love, it's really important that we are careful here. We don't become more pantheistic in our theological understanding of God is love. This is from Danny Aiken, guy who wrote a commentary on this, and they should throw it up behind me, uh, talking about God being love. He says, God is love does not equal love is God, which is a form of pantheistic thinking. Any more than grass is green means green is grass. Love does not define God, but God does define love. So what John's saying here is not that we should idolize love, but instead that we don't really understand love unless we understand it in light of who God is in his character. God defines what true love really is. Therefore, when we talk about pursuing love, whether it's interpersonally with our spouse or whether it's interpersonally with our neighbor, our coworker, or even when it's our love for God, we have to define it in such a way that is biblically true about what God says love is. Because sometimes we could just say it's loving to do you fill in the blank, and really that's just something we made up because it feels more comfortable. But the Bible gives us a definition of love that's deeply sacrificial, deeply meaningful. You know, it's kind of weird in our culture because how do you know if you really love God? Or how do you even know if you have a true understanding of love? Because we love like, we love God, we love our spouse, and we love chocolate cake. And we use the same word for all those things, right? That's tough. Can we agree that's tough? It's like, I love God, I love Jesus, I love my spouse, I love my kids, and I love, you know, Chick-fil-A number one. Hopefully not all in the same way, though. 
And that's why it's important that we say love's not the idol, it's God who defines love, and yet we don't want to lose that love is such a precious, I think it, it may be the virtue that God calls the Christian to carry in the New Testament, and really in the Old as well. It's in the Shema, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes that later on to say these are the two greatest commandments. So love is this precious virtue. Listen to what John Piper says about why John says we don't understand love apart from God. Here is what he says. Love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it's light. The fire gives heat because it's heat. So John's point is that in the new birth, this aspect of the divine nature becomes a part of who you are. The new birth is the imparting to you of divine life. An indispensable part of that life is love. God's nature is love, and the new birth that is that that nature becomes part of who you are. When you are born again, God himself is imparted to you. He dwells in you, and he sheds abroad in your heart this love. And it's his aim that this love be perfected in you. Notice the phrase, his love, in verse 12. The love that you have as a born-again person is no mere imitation of the divine love. It is the experience of the divine love and an extension of that love to others, close quote. I, that's a lot of words, but I love what he does here. He's talking about union with Christ being an incredibly powerful doctrine, not only to believe, but to live which is that when the new birth happens, and we talked about this a couple of sermons ago, the seed of God planted in the heart, when it comes to full bloom, the part of the divine nature that is now implanted into us by the power of the Spirit causes us to love one another. It's why I said there are two commands in this text, but only one movement. And that movement initially is not us to God, but it's God to us. God incarnate and coming to love us is what caused us to not only be able to love God, but love one another. And these things come together. Later on, John's gonna say, it's impossible to say I love God and hate your brother because the divine nature doesn't allow that. It doesn't allow for that kind of cognitive dissonance that we're so easily and readily available to accept. Okay, so how does God define love? It's very simple. Look at verse number nine. Verse number nine, John says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God defines love very simply in the cross or in the incarnation, in the cross, in the resurrection. He, he defines love as if you want to know what love is, look to Jesus, which I think is a magnificent way to explain what true love is. If we look at Jesus's life, we find true love there. John Stott, which is a Scottish pastor, says this. He says, it's God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated God himself, who in holy love undertook to do the propitiation, and God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. You notice the, the focus here? The focus here is on God. God stepping in, when, when John uses the word propitiation, which is really only used like a few times in the Bible, he's saying that there's this wrath of God, justice, true, that has to be appeased. And rather than God laying that on our shoulders, which would have been just as well, Jesus steps in the way. So God himself steps in, and this is what love looks like. Love is atoning. Love is, love is substitutionary. 
Love is sacrificial. Love is costly. You have kids, or if you're married, you kind of get this, right? Like, like love is, if you watch a romantic comedy, it seems fun, and then you get married. And sometimes it's not as fun, you know? It's like it's not as fun to wake up. And, and, we, and honestly, in our culture, we kind of say, well, if you wake up one day and you don't really have the feels for your wife anymore, then, then you're only abusing yourself. Maybe what you need to do is you need to find someone else because you know, God would never want you to live that way. And, and the Bible defines it entirely different than that. It's this constant waking up and choosing that I will love them. I will not forsake them. God's love for us in the book of Hosea is he, he even makes it akin to this prostitute who continues to commit adultery on the husband and yet God tells uh, Hosea, he says, you're gonna continue to pursue Gomer no matter how many times she does this to you, you go back and you, you continue to pay the price, you continue to, to, to pull her out of these situations and you continue to show your love and then he says, why am I having you do this, Hosea? Because this is how I feel with the children of Israel and yet I will not relent with my love for them. Moms, you kind of get this with your kids, Right? Like your kids can do some terrible things. And for me and for some of the others around here, we can not like your kids, but you can't not like them, right? I mean, you can not like them, but you, you love them. It's like we look at your kids and I'm like, this kid. And you look at them like, this kid. But deep down, you're, they could go to jail and you'd be like, but I love them. You show up at the jailhouse for them. It's just this love. Like you look, for some of you who are moms and maybe your kid struggles with some sort of disability, whether there be a learning disability. It's the love that you have, not fun love, sacrificial love. Pursuing them, caring for them. That's what the Bible defines as real love. And that's what Jesus showed for us on the cross. John Stott would go, later go on to say, if sin is man substituting himself for God in rebellion, the love of God in the gospel is that God substitutes, him, substitutes himself for man. So in our sin, we try to be God and we try to sit on his throne and that's what sin actually, that's what caused us to be separated from God. But on the flip side, God instead substitutes himself for us, comes down as a peasant, comes down as a Nazarene, comes down in a manger. We're gonna celebrate that in about a month, right? Poor. The wealthy becomes poor. The powerful becomes weak. He steps down and loves us. And listen, the fact, the point here from John, I think is this, it's meant to be moving. God's love is meant to not just be an intellectual assent. This is a problem that I have sometimes whenever we're so, um, not wrongly, but maybe overly infatuated with theological precision, is that you miss the point. The point is not that we would simply know something cognitively, but that we would experience it, that we would be moved by it. The love of God is not meant to just be facts that we've written down. It's meant to be something that just overwhelms us. And the reason for that is important. It's because when we're overwhelmed by it, it's what leads you to this radical kind of love for neighbor and for God. I think Hollywood and entertainment has played upon the central themes for a, lot, for a long time in a number of different ways. I mean, if you, you can think about it, the initiating love of God is meant to be staggering and it's meant to move us. And so Hollywood makes a lot of money based on the idea of basically taking those themes and then moving us in the theater. Examples would be sacrificial love. Maybe you, if you remember, if you're old enough, like Saving Private Ryan, maybe. Right, the sacrificial love theme, moving, it's a moving film. Or most recently, like Dunkirk, why is that so powerful? It's the sacrificial love, these people that get together and they're gonna go and they know they're gonna give their lives, why? To save these soldiers, bring them back across, people dying. Or maybe like even children's writings, whether it be like Harry Potter, right? This sacrificial theme that goes through. Or maybe even like, you could take some of the American classics. You could just kind of run through and realize there's this sacrificial theme that runs through and it moves us. 
or girls, and maybe a few guys, you can, you don't have to, you know, you just look straight ahead, you don't have to agree, but um, like the sustaining patient love, like the notebook, why did, it, why did it make so many people love it and keep watching it? My wife watches it no matter when it comes on. I'm like, you have seen this so many times. I know, but it's so good. Why? It's like this guy who just decides he's gonna wait it out for this one woman, right? Just the sustaining patient love for this gal. You get merciful love in the most dark of situations, things like Schindler's List, which why would that movie be so successful? It's dark, isn't it? Why is it successful? Theme. Or even get the forgiving love of like Les Mis, right? It's like, why is it powerful? It's, yes, it's powerful for the musical component, but I think it's the themes that run deeper than that that make it so powerful. Love moves an audience to tears. It moves the, even the characters in the film or in the play, they're moved with gratitude, right? They, it moves them, moves them to affection. And I think what John's doing here, even you can find this in the fairy tales, right? And I think there's no greater fairy tale maybe to make John's point here than the fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty. You guys remember this fairy tale? If you don't, it's very simple. This, this princess gets a curse is put on her and she has basically consigned to sleep until true love's kiss wakes her up, right? You guys remember this? And I think that the theme here is that when true love comes and this prince charming comes by and he sees this sleeping princess, this sleeping bride who's basically dead laying down, he falls in love with her. Why, we don't know, right? I don't know if you've ever seen you know, people asleep for 100 years or something like that. He falls in love with her. And it's on, upon his kiss that she, her heart starts to beat again, right? She comes back alive. She comes and happily ever after they live. That's the theme of this whole fairy tale. And that's what John is saying here, that Christ sees us in our dead state, loves us, so much so that he would then go, and you, you get other, uh, other variations of Sleeping Beauty, like he has to slay the dragon first, right? It's like, okay, well, that's some, similarly Jesus, like slays the dragon, true love's first kiss, and now our heart starts to beat again. And we can reciprocate the unrequited love of the prince, right? The big point is the gospel stories were written throughout, and the whole point is that God loved us first, I love what one pastor says. He says, the Bible's very clear. It did not say that the world so loved God. In fact, it says the opposite. The world did not so love God. It's that God so loved the world when they didn't love him. He was willing to give his son. And verse 11 is basically telling us that it must move us to love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I love that John is not being like a, like a weird football coach here. He's just trying to, She's trying to woo us into the, hey, if, if you're loved like that, why wouldn't you love? If you've been lavishly given this love, why wouldn't you want to reciprocate that kind of love to other people? And you might be looking at me and going, Court, that's all fine and good, but I can love Jesus because Jesus doesn't act like my neighbor does. And that's, I think, why God does not base our love for God as the foundation upon which we should also love neighbor, but it's in the reverse, that God loved the unlovely and therefore we should be able to love the unlovely. Because the question is, how unlovely are we that God would love us? And the Bible paints a pretty bleak picture. So when your neighbor like, you know, cuts the lawn and like doesn't cut far enough or cuts too far, that's not nearly the kind of annoying that we are to God, <laughs> And yet he loved us. 
Then he goes on, verse 12. Well, what happens when we love like this? Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we've seen and we testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe that the love God has for us, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So a couple things. Verse 12 makes this case. Why does John randomly say no one's seen God before? especially since he's making the case that Jesus is the image of the invisible, right? Seems like that's an odd thing to place there. What he's saying is that no one has seen God face to face without a veil. Jesus Christ in the body is the veil of what the divinity that's behind the curtain, behind the fleshly tabernacle. Similarly so, when Moses asked God, I wanna see you face to face, God. I wanna see you so I know, so I can be confident to tell them what Yahweh has said. And what does God tell him? I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll let you see my back as I pass before you, right? And it says that even just seeing the backside of God as he passes before Moses, that Moses saw such a glory of God that his face was shining. Also, you see that on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured before the eyes of the disciples, notice that they first are put to sleep. They can't even see God face to face without dying, right? This was a big thing with the high priest. When he went into the Holy of Holies, he could even die. They'd tie a rope around him and he'd go in there with a bell. And when the bell stopped jingling, it was like, "Uh uh-oh, and they'd pull the dead guy out. John's saying no one has seen God face to face and lived, but that when we love one another, we reflect and we show the world a picture of God's love. That's what the Christian's meant to be. We're meant to be a portrait of a loving God to the world. We're meant to display the majesty of Christ, the love of Christ. Our interactions, our speech, our care, Our patience, our gentleness, our engagement, our initiative, our sacrifice is meant to show people a more full picture of what they don't see. Think about that for a second, not just with your Christian brother, but with your non-believing family members. How do they know Jesus if they don't see at least more clearly when they look at you? John says this because love is active. Love is meant to create faith, create confession, create communion. And there's no better example of love than Jesus because the incarnation of Jesus shows us a man who lived abiding in the Father's love and loved others perfectly. A few examples of that that I wrote down were, remember the story of Jesus and the widow at Nain? It says there's this funeral procession that's happening and this this widow who had lost her husband, which means that you gotta think about this. In, In this time, historically, for her to lose her husband would have meant that she was extremely poor And the only hope that she had would have been for her son to be able to carry on and make money for the family. And the funeral so happens to be not for her husband, but for her son who died. So she's weeping and crying, not only for the loss of a child, but now she knows what basically her family is gonna be led into. And the procession of the funeral goes on and Jesus walks on the scene. And it says that he looks at her, he sees her is what the Bible says. And that he's moved with compassion. And he goes up, to the beer, which is the casket, and it says that he touches the casket and the boy comes out. And he says, rise, you know, rise and walk. And the boy is basically raised from the dead. And you think about that, and you think of, in all of the crowds, it says in that particular passage that there was a big crowd with the funeral procession, but most commentators say Jesus probably had bigger crowds coming with him, like thousands were following Jesus. 
And in all of the crowds, Jesus, think about a funeral procession. I don't know if you've ever seen like the uh, early first century um, like Jewish funeral processions, they're loud, throwing dust up. It's a lot of commotion, thousands of people, crowds, think of all the kids. Like think Providence after service, you know, at a big gathering, get all the kids running around, times that by 10, and then add to that like this grieving that's happening here, and then this weird celebration with like a Christian celebrity, like a religious celebrity, and it's all the mix, and what does Jesus do? He spots the woman who's at her worst, at her darkest, at her most hurt, at her most vulnerable. He walks to her, and I just picture Jesus looking at her as he touches the casket, which we all know, right? The Old Testament, that would have made him ritualistically unclean. It would have been, that would have been a bad thing for Jesus to do as a rabbi. You don't touch the dead, or even, you don't even get within you know, close proximity of the dead. This is why the Good Samaritan story was so powerful, and Jesus just raises the boy to life. Or I also thought of Jesus and the blind man or the Jesus and Zacchaeus, right? Remember the blind man, John chapter nine? He's been blind for so long. Everybody knows he's the blind guy. He always tries to you know, find his way into situations where he might be healed. And Jesus just asks him, do you, be, do you wanna see again? He says, of course I wanna see again. He spits in the mud, he sticks it on his eyes, which is the weirdest way, right? To heal a person, can we agree? He says, go show yourself to the priest. And there's this weird interaction with the priest and the blind guy. And Jesus sees this man in his affliction. Jesus walks away, doesn't take the glory, but then finds the man later on and says, hey, now that you see physically, let's talk about what happened. And Jesus just reveals to me, the the man's like, I I don't know what to say except for that I once was blind and now I see. He's talking to the Pharisees. He goes back and then Jesus reveals to him, "I'm, I'm the Messiah. Now you can see spiritually. Or how about all the crowds walking by and, Everybody's excited about Jesus. He's in Jericho. He's coming to town. And Jesus stops everybody and he points up into a tree where this tiny guy has climbed a tree so that he could get a view of Jesus. And he says, hey, you up there, Zacchaeus, we're gonna go have dinner at your house. Well, who's Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's a a murderer. He's probably done some awful things. He's a a man who's stolen money. He's a man who's betrayed his own people. And Jesus sees this man and says, let's have dinner. Let's, Let's sit down together. Or Jesus and the blind man Bartimaeus who just cries out and people keep saying to him, stop yelling at Jesus, he's not coming over here. And he says, I will not stop crying out. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus walks up to him, hears him, heals him of blindness. There's no one who loves like Jesus loves. There's no one who has compassion like Jesus has compassion. He sees, he listens, he engages. And I just want to ask us this morning, what kind of action is love calling you to take When we talk about loving one another, it's one thing to say that you love one another. How have you loved one another recently? Who has God opened your eyes to see, to see them, or maybe to hear them in a way that they haven't been heard before? Maybe it's even someone who lives in your house to love them in this way. That's what John is trying to show us. If God so loves us this way, beloved, ought we also to love one another this way? If Jesus loves us this way, if Jesus sees us this way, if Jesus listens to us this way, ought we ought also to have compassion on one another, see one another, listen to one another, meet one another's needs, even when it's inconvenient. And then lastly, this is what John tells us about the love of God in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence before the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world 
There again, you have the doctrine of the union of Christ that we don't have to be afraid of judgment because we are one with Christ. As Christ is in the world, there we are also. So when we stand before God one day, we won't plead our own good works, but we'll plead the gospel, we'll plead the cause of Christ, we'll plead Jesus and what he's done so that where he is there, we will be also. He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You've been loved by God. He's moved your hearts to love others. You see, there's a difference in the Bible between discipline and wrath and judgment. The wrath and judgment has been absorbed by Jesus on the cross. Just because we experience the discipline of a father, it feels like we should be afraid of that, like your toddler might be afraid of you when you discipline them. And then they get older and realize that it was love and love casts away fear. As we spiritually mature prayerfully, the fear of God begins to be supplanted by Love for God, which includes all. It includes reverence. It includes all the best parts of fear, and it eliminates the worst parts, right? Shame, guilt, condemnation. And that's what John is pressing us for. Spiritual maturity that starts to cast away fear. And then he ends with this. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must, must, must also love his brother. Friends, I wanna ask you, who is it that God has called you to love? And who is it potentially that you may have allowed hatred to creep into your heart? And you might say, I don't hate anybody, Court. Well, who are you indifferent towards? Because indifference can sometimes be worse than hate. Who's God called you to love? And I say that not as a command to try and stir up good works based on your own strength, but on the basis that you've been this loved by God. I pray this morning you'd feel an experience like Dwight L. Moody, that overwhelming like second conversion about God's love. This is how much he loves me. Oh, he loves me this much. And then from that, you ask yourself, who has God placed in your life to love like that? Who has God called into your life that you might see like Jesus saw Zacchaeus? No one else saw Zacchaeus. He's hidden up in the tree, but Jesus was looking for a guy like that. Who has Jesus placed in your life that you might feel like you'd be moved with compassion? One time I heard someone say, compassion is like my, it's like uh, your heart's beating in my chest. I feel what you feel, this, this empathy, you know? Who has God placed in your life that you wanna feel like that? And that that compassion would not just be this kind of like, oh, I feel bad for them, but a movement toward what even might be uncomfortable, like Jesus. What even might make you unclean feeling. You ever gotten into somebody else's mess and felt you getting dirty? That's love sometimes. Who is the Lord calling you to love like that? And if nothing else, then my prayers that you'd leave out here this morning and maybe as more than a platitude when someone tells you that God loves you, you would feel it and know exactly what that means. For God so loved the world that what? That the cross was for you and for me. That's how much. You'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I just, I echo the words of that, that young preacher that doesn't even get a name in Moody's journals and just say, my stammering lips can't even give, 
can't give voice to just how much you love us. And so now would you just send an overwhelming message to the hearts of the hearer that your love is greater far than any tongue could tell, any pen could write. That you would reach to the depths to to grab us out of our miry clay of sin, that you would pursue us as the the one sheep lost from the flock, even though you still have 99, that you'd pursue us. That, That kind of love for us, God, still stands today. Would you reveal that to us? And my God, would you reveal it to us in such a way that when we start to engage our everyday life, that people, if they said one thing about us, about the people of Providence, they would say those people know how to love well. Those people love the unlovely. Those people love well. My God, would we be known for that? Help us to be known for that. People that we've ignored, we ask your forgiveness. Just wash us clean for where we've fallen short. And instead, God, open our eyes, ears, and hearts to see as you see When we look at you in the Gospels, Jesus, we see your overwhelming specific love that you would see people who other people overlook. You hear people that other people have tuned out. Oh, God, teach us to be that way. And for the person here, my Lord, that feels that way in their own life, they feel like people don't hear them. They feel like they're not seen. Would you remind them you are the God who sees, you are the God who hears? Remind them now of your love. And may it motivate us all over again to sing about the deep Father's love for us. In Jesus' name.